open another window <laughs> and add that to my five billion windows that I have open? <laughs> Hi everyone, thanks for joining us on another episode with the Poor People Podcast. I'm Jackie. Hi, I'm me. And today we'll be discussing healthcare again. This is our second episode of two, although sometimes I feel like we need five or more episodes because yeah. there's so much information. The more I look things up, the more I realize I don't know about certain things or, um, you know, I'm just learning a lot more and opening up new doors for information and avenues and questions. It's it's overwhelming. Yeah, it <laughs> definitely is overwhelming. And the funny thing is, so me and I both assigned each other like two-ish additional countries in addition to looking at uh, the healthcare system in the United States. And it's there's just so much information, even just looking at the United States, just because we have different states and stuff, like healthcare rules within each state versus like the entire federal system too. So there's just there's just so much. Yep. As a disclaimer again, I want to let you guys know that we are not experts or lawyers or anything <laughs> like that. This is purely for entertainment purposes. <laughs> yeah. Don't sue us. Please don't take our advice and try to sue us. <laughs> We're trying our best just to share our findings. Um, and if there are any things that we said incorrectly, please do let us know. We, we like to learn on basically every subject that we, we talk about. Yeah, and if you actually need advice on healthcare, please seek your healthcare professional or health insurance person or... Or a social worker. Yeah. Don't, don't rely on us, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jackie, let's start here in the, the U.S. What is the marketplace? So under the Affordable Care Act, we have an insurance marketplace. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a different marketplace for each state, right? I'm in Oregon now, so we have the Oregon marketplace. And when I was in Colorado, we had a Colorado marketplace for health insurance. And depending on, I guess, how much the state has opted in or opted out of certain provisions in the Affordable Care Act, you may have more more or less coverage, right? Mm-hmm. It's true. The, the more you spend on a certain health insurance gives you more coverage on certain things, as always, uh, and some physicians or specialists only accept certain types of health insurance. It's it's all wacky. Yeah, I remember when um, up until recently I was unemployed because of the pandemic. Really weird story, but essentially I I was moving to a new job, and then that job got furloughed because of the pandemic. But essentially, I started looking into. Healthcare. If you guys remember from the last episode, I had a slight breakdown <laughs> of of trying to remember when my friend told me I needed health insurance. Um, and you know, like after I calmed down, I decided to look into the the marketplace for health insurance because you know, let's let's see how much it is, how much it actually costs to grab health insurance. And let me tell you, I normally have for pretty much all of my adult life have dealt with health insurance through my employer. Honestly, it was very exhausting to look at all the different plans and try to understand all the different things that the marketplace offered, right? Because to some extent, there there was a subsidy that the, the government would give to me paying for this health 
care plan. But even that, even even with that, it, it's still it's still a big chunk of money. Like I think the cheapest plan I found was a plan through Kaiser Permanente, which is a, a popular, um, I guess, hospital organization on the West Coast. I, I think it's just on the West Coast. But their bronze plan, even after the estimated subsidy that they, they would give me, the cost would be $261 a month with that essentially being what they considered a good year, with the total cost of the good year being about $3,000. That would mean that I would essentially not really use my health insurance. I can, and and that to me is crazy. You're paying three hundred dollars, essentially like a little under three hundred dollars a month to not use your health insurance, and the deductible for this health insurance plan is six thousand nine hundred dollars. Vision's not included, dental's not included, and this was like the cheapest plan. And before that provision was taken down, um, where you need to pay essentially a a fine if you didn't have health insurance, like. Can you imagine either you pay a fine or you pay essentially $300 a month for essentially not using health insurance? It seems ludicrous. Yeah, I feel like the marketplace could be overwhelming, especially for people who are not used to browsing and selecting their own healthcare insurance. With an employer, like you said, there's usually a really small fixed number of options you have available, maybe three. <laughs> yeah, and even um, then, I feel like it's it's a little exhausting to look through those three Yeah, you have to compare the prices, how much you're paying, what you actually get, even if you don't expect to see a doctor or go in for something. You're calculating, I don't know, maybe tens of dollars of differences. Yeah. That could be stressful too. When I had to look for health insurance because my company went under. I was unemployed for a bit there and it's required by law for you to have health insurance. I had to go to the Covered California website and I have a previous condition where I was seeing a couple of doctors, my oncologist and my ENT, and I needed to make sure that this health insurance was going to cover that. Luckily, the Covered California website was a pretty good experience to use. I, I can't say the same thing for other marketplaces, but the California one, before you even start selecting your health insurance plan, you actually can input your doctors that you plan on seeing and it will filter out for you the oh. op- yeah the health insurance options that are accepted by those providers so that was very neat i i feel like i get maybe the aca forced a bunch of states to pick up their game and actually create reusable websites yeah and make it be easier for people to f- figure out what actually works for them but again like it wasn't cheap plan that the most basic plan that I chose that both of those providers accepted was, I think it was like between $450 or $500 a month. Can you imagine if we were actually part of families? Because like we're, we're individuals, right? We're single women that are unmarried currently. And this is this is for an individual plan. So can you imagine like if you're a family, part of a family of four, how much that would cost a year? So I, I can't even imagine how much it would take for like a family that makes close to the poverty line makes that much money a year and have to try to provide health insurance for their children and, and themselves. Yeah, I, I can't imagine that. If I, if I could barely, you know, find something that works for me, imagine doing it for like my family. I, I don't know. Too much, yeah. too much overload. It's, it's really funny. I was talking to my mom the other day about 
healthcare and health insurance in the US. And I was telling her um, how I talked to you a couple days ago about trying to figure out the healthcare plan that I would want to select um, once I start my new position. And it's like, well, do I want to grab something that allows me to put money into an HSA and take a gamble or you know, go through the traditional like HMO, PPO choices. And I mean, essentially that I feel like that generally summarizes the US healthcare system in a really general succinct way is is that it's kind of a gamble. You can either pay a lot and hope, you know, you'll have that coverage to use if you need it or pay for a cheap plan and save money, but potentially put yourself at some financial risk if you do get sick. Yeah, it's unfortunate that you have to be put in that situation, whether you want to be more socially and financially stable. (laughs) Or I don't know, maybe that prevents you from doing more fun things in life. I don't know. That's more philosophical. But you shouldn't have to pick and choose between your future and now. I don't know, maybe that's that's just an opinion. I mean, I agree with that opinion. It just for you guys to know the whole context of the thing. So my new job is offering a health care plan that allows me to put money into an HSA. When you put money into an HSA, you have to essentially, you kind of put yourself at a higher risk because you have to have a high deductible insurance plan. So I was joking with me like, hey, do I take the risk and put money into an HSA and have the risk of potentially breaking my hand in judo again? And you made a good point <laughs> that it's pandemic season. We're probably have to deal with coronavirus for the next couple months at least. So likely I won't be able to go back to full contact judo so there's a there's a slightly lower chance of me breaking my hand i might want to do the hsa for now and then if i go back to full contact sport judo where i'm tossing people around and and you know competing competitions then maybe switch back to the pvo but you know it's yeah it's kind of sad that i have to think about that kind of thing and yeah adding in so many outside variables one being judo and, and the other being when is open enrollment is that the beginning of next year 2021 if that's the case, then you have what, how many months? What's today? June, July, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you have like seven months <laughs> to not hurt yourself. Yeah, some people might just say, hey, you know, just don't do stupid things and get hurt. Well, life yeah. is full of accidents. Sometimes it's completely out of your control, even yeah. if you're doing the best thing that you can and practice things as safely as you can. Yep. I definitely didn't intend to break my hand. My hand just, as my coaches all said, it was a weird freak accident where my finger got stuck in the person's gi, their uniform essentially, and it twisted and you heard that snap throughout the entire gym. It's not like I did things that forced my body to be like, I'm going to create a tumor right here on my neck. (laughs) Oh man. Um, Well, since we started talking about HSA, me, why don't you start us off with employer-based healthcare in the U.S. and like all the different plans and what the differences are and what what are the positives and negatives of each plan, I guess. There's a handful of health insurance types and accounts that your employer can possibly give you. I'm saying possibly because it's optional for them. I think, is it in California if you have at least 50 people you're legally required to provide health insurance i I forget there's a number i think that that sounds right i i think i'm not sure if that's mandated by the aca in general so i I think it might apply to a lot of states and then potentially california might be a little stricter around that yeah there's a couple types of different health insurance plans 
there's PPO and HMO and an HDHP. Those are all acronyms. <laughs> and I don't know what any of them mean. I just I just look at them and I'm like, okay, insurance. <laughs> Which one's gonna cost you the least? <laughs> Usually, so let's go through them. Um, an HMO is generally ones that would cost you the least. So an example of an HMO is like Kaiser. HMO means health maintenance organization. So with an HMO, you have a wide range of healthcare services through a network of providers that agree to supply, you know, X services to the members. The thing with the HMO, which people either think is a really strong pro or a really strong con, is you're required to choose a primary care physician. What that means is whenever you need anything, any healthcare need, and before you get to actually see or speak to a specialist, you have to go get a referral from your primary care provider. That's either a, a blessing, meaning, you know, you want someone else to handle things for you or a curse if you're someone who likes to explore your own options and find out who you want to be your specialist. Um, so sort of people think the opposite of HMO is at the PPO, which is the preferred provider organization. And with that, you don't necessarily need a primary care physician. I think those ones are generally a bit more expensive. Yeah. But you get that flexibility, yeah, of seeing whoever you want. Yeah, I think with I think they cover more out-of-network stuff, whereas HMOs, I, I think they don't cover out-of-network care. Yeah. And as Jackie already said, uh, with a there's a, another type of health plan called a high deductible health plan. That's the HDHP. The monthly premium is usually lower, but you pay more for the healthcare costs before the insurance company starts to pay its share, which is you know your deductible. Benefits of an HDHP is you can pair it with a health savings plan, which. You can think of it sort of like a 401k. You can put money into it and it can grow with you. And this is an account that you can bring with you as you get older. You can take money out of it for health expenses, basically. Yeah. And those health expenses could be anything from like doctor co-pays or even like things if you need to pay for like the dentist or something, dental procedures. Um, A lot of HSAs will allow you to use the money from your HSA to pay for those things. Yeah. Sometimes your employer can even match how much money you put into your HSA. That's always so nice. (laughs) Free money, basically. Not Again, like not every company does this or offers all of these plans, which is funny slash not funny because <laughs> when you're job searching or hunting, one of the things that you look at for your hiring package is the health insurance. Like which company offers better health insurance? Which one matches me or my family better? Which one's more beneficial? Do they offer an HSA? Things like that becomes pretty important. Hopefully it's important. <laughs> Something to note too about HSAs is HSA, the money that goes into it is pre-tax. So you're essentially, you're not paying tax money on the HSA or for FSAs as well. Um, it's, it's pre-tax money. So you're essentially saving a bunch of money that you would otherwise be paying into tax. Oh yeah. I didn't even talk about FSA. <laughs> what is an FSA? Uh, an FSA is a flexible spending account, which at the beginning of the year, you could opt to put aside X amount of money for health-related purchases. And then over the course of the year, a fraction of you know how much you opted in for gets taken out of your paycheck. 
uh, that's also a tax advantage account. Yeah, and the thing that I was initially super confused about between the two accounts is that one is tied to your employer. So the FSA is tied to your employer. And like me said, it's it's the beginning of your calendar year to, to the end of your calendar year. So you have to spend that money that you're putting into that account, um, mm-hmm. all of it, or you lose it. It's They call it user, use it or lose it, essentially. Um, yeah. You do have a small period of time in the next year to – it's kind of like a little grace period that they'll allow you to use – some of the like kind of roll the funds over a little bit but i think it's it's capped at like five hundred dollars or something so yeah we use it all in one year or it's gone yeah it's like five hundred dollars definitely rolls over you also can only put in a certain amount per year i think for 2020 it's like twenty seven hundred fifty dollars yeah and it sort of changes over time i think it gets it actually increases a little bit per year but yeah um, definitely check to see how much you can contribute to it before making healthcare decisions for you and your family. Definitely. Um, and the cool thing about HSAs versus the FSA is that one goes with you. Like me said, it's kind of like a 401k account. It goes with you wherever you decide to move on from like one employer to the next employer. It doesn't matter if you worked for one employer that gave you an HSA like 10 years ago, you if you moved on to a different company um, or even like five other different companies, that HSA is still yours and that money will continue to be yours essentially. Yep. Okay. I think that's enough on the USA side of things. <laughs> USA is the best. It's the greatest. Is it? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's try to compare and contrast it to some other countries. You looked up things in Canada. Do you want to share some of your findings? Maybe some history of Canadian healthcare? Yeah. I'm just going to generally summarize my... First, I'll give you a general summary and then I'll go into details. General summary of my research. I looked into Canada and I also looked into Sweden. And I have to say that as much as I love the United States in certain ways, our healthcare system is shit. (laughs) So Canada has a decentralized, universal, publicly funded healthcare system, and they call that Canadian Medicare. So their healthcare system is funded by the country's 13 provinces and territories, and each of those provinces and territories have their own insurance plan. Each of those territories and provinces receives cash assistance from the federal government on a per capita basis. To be a part of this Medicare system, each of these provinces and territories has to follow what is essentially the five pillars of the Canadian Health Act, which was passed in 1984. It has to be publicly administered. It has to be comprehensive in coverage conditions. It's universally available to all Canadian citizens. It has to be portable across the provinces, and it has to be accessible. So users can't be charged all these different fees and whatnot. So it's a huge contrast to the American healthcare system where we're used to paying a lot of copays and and additional fees when we get our healthcare. So while each province and territory insurance plan can be slightly different, the things that they all generally cover um, is hospital stays, necessary surgeries, um, maternity services, which include things like childbirth, prenatal care, postnatal care, um, newborn care, which 
vastly is different from U.S. maternity services, but I'm, I'm going to stop mentioning that because it's it'll drive me insane. And uh, prescription drugs while you're in the hospital. What it doesn't cover is things like elective surgeries, things that aren't considered, um, I guess, vital to your survival. Dental care doesn't um, provide dental care, and it doesn't provide vision care. So a lot of those services, like those additional things that Canadian healthcare or Canadian Medicare doesn't um, take care of, it's that's where Canadians also use private health insurance. So they kind of have a mixed plan where there's there's the public funded system, um, and then there's the private insurance plans, which like the U.S., a, a lot of Canadians get those services through their employer, and about two-thirds of Canadians use private health insurance to pay for things like um, prescription drugs um, when they're outside of the hospital, rehabilitation services, um, private hospital rooms, things like that. Something to note <laughs> that I'm sure you guys have heard, uh, prescription drug prices in Canada are significantly cheaper than the U.S. I'm sure you guys have heard of it. When we talk about prescription drug prices in the U.S. being just crazy, crazy high, part of that reason is because um, in Canada, the government um, plays a big role in setting the prices for prescription drugs. They negotiate with companies that produce these prescription drugs to come to essentially an agreed upon cost. Whereas in the United States, Medicare is essentially banned from negotiating prices for prescription drugs, which is part of the reason why it's so high. When did Canada adopt this healthcare system? So they adopted this, the single payer system in 1984 when they passed the Canada Health Act, um, which funnily enough, I recently learned was uh, the the father of the Canadian healthcare system, essentially, is I think the grandfather of Kiefer Sutherland. And if you guys are fans of 24 at all, you'll you'll know he's Jack Bauer. So essentially Jack oh. Bauer's grandfather <laughs> is the father of Canadian healthcare, which I think is hilarious. Has it been widely popularly accepted in general or has it sort of fluctuated over time? Um. I would say it's it's generally pretty well accepted in Canada. I mean, it's been quite a number of years now since it in initially passed, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, Canadians do have the choice of opting into private insurance and, and getting insurance through their employer, or they also have, if they're self-employed, they have the ability to also purchase insurance. It's popular in the sense that you're covering healthcare for all Canadians, right? I see. I I have a buddy in Canada who actually said he and his some families or friends, I forget which, has struggles with the healthcare system, especially when they need to get surgery done. It's very difficult to, you know, just schedule your surgery. So they generally just go over to the United States and get it done. Yeah. So that's one of the issues that often come up when people talk about the downsides of the Canadian healthcare system, right? So the good thing about the Canadian healthcare system is is if you need to see, I think, a primary care doctor, then um, you won't necessarily need to wait 
a ton of time or if you need like emergency services, that's something you you can get. Just essentially life-saving services, that's not the issue. The issue a lot of the times in Canada is that it's long wait times for specialists. So from what I've read, the average wait time in Canada reported in I think in 2017 was to see a specialist, you average wait time is about 20 weeks, which when you compare to the U.S., a U.S. patient would generally wait probably less than four weeks to see a specialist. The median wait time has decreased over the past couple years. So let's see. In 2017, it was reported the wait time was 21.2 weeks. Um, and the median wait time recently, um, I believe this report was in 2019, it was 19.8 weeks. Um, but the wait time, they said, is generally still 113% longer than it was in 1993. You can argue that that's an, an increase in population, but a decrease in a decrease or the same amount of um, healthcare providers, essentially. Uh, so you mentioned prescription drugs a while back. Can you tell me how prescription drugs are usually priced? Yeah. So in a lot of countries that are not the United States, <laughs> the countries will generally have a government agency meet with pharmaceutical companies and they'll haggle over some appropriate price. Um, they'll settle on some kind of agreement to how much they want to pay for a drug, right? That ability to negotiate essentially prescription drugs, um, and, and this this is not just talking about generics, this is talking about companies that come out with a drug and, you know, just like regular, I suppose, brand name prescription drugs. These are the prices that are being negotiated, right? So under current law, the the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services is actually prohibited from negotiating lower prices on behalf of Medicare Part D beneficiaries. So essentially, as a country, the U.S. does not negotiate or regulate any prescription medication costs, which which is crazy because we'll talk about this in a different episode because um, I have so many things to say about pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. because um, I used to intern at an NGO in D.C. called Public Citizen. Shout out to Public Citizen. They're great. In the Access to Medicines group and essentially with pharmaceutical companies in the U.S., they use a lot of different loopholes to do this practice called evergreening. They'll evergreen their patents, which means they extend the life of their patents by coming up with supposed new uses for their drugs. Um, and that just, when they are allowed to extend the life of their patents, they're allowed to have an, a monopoly essentially on that specific drug. And you can always say like, yes, drug companies are should be allowed to price their drugs as as high as they want because, you know, um, they're the ones who developed it and that helps with R&D. It pays for R&D. Larger conversation, but generally something that I think a lot of Americans don't realize is, is one, we don't negotiate at all. Um, and two, some of the money that goes into the research for these companies are actually publicly funded. It's money that, that the U.S. government, um, different departments, give to those companies to research and, and develop these drugs. So they're using a lot of um, information that's provided by public universities um, through research and everything. So it's not just them. It's it's part technically we kind of partially paid for it through our taxes. So the fact that we can't negotiate those prices is completely ludicrous. Um, in the U.S., something that's come up a lot in in recent days is the whole both sides argument. Right. The thing is, like this issue with pharmaceutical companies, is is actually one of the one of the issues that you can blame on both sides. Um, 
there was a resolution sometime, I forget, I think it was like 2017, Senate Amendment 178 to Senate Concurrent Resolution 3. Super long name. Um, Normally, I wouldn't pay attention too much to it, but the Senate was voting on whether or not we would allow for the U.S. to import prescription drugs from Canada because a lot of people from the U.S. actually <laughs> legally get medications from other countries and send them to the U.S. to get to, to essentially treat their their sickness. Right? Um, that's currently illegal. Senator Bernie Sanders, I believe, brought this to the floor. He wrote this bill and essentially tried to get this to pass to lower the cost of prescription drugs to to Americans that need it. The nays included a lot of Democratic senators that say that, you know, they're for lowering the cost of prescription drugs. And there is a theory that a lot of these Democratic senators that voted against this bill um, voted against it because they received money essentially from Big Pharma. Democratic senators that voted against this bill were essentially paid by lobbyists um, by Big Pharma to vote against this bill. I mean, if you're getting a lot of money, why why vote yes, right? Just because like U.S. drug prices are completely out of control. There's um, a report that was released by the Ways and Means Committee looking at international drug pricing, and it stated that U.S. drug prices are nearly four times higher than the combined average of 11 other similar countries and that Americans pay as much as 67 times more than consumers in other nations for prescription drugs, even when accounting for rebates. And that's absolutely ludicrous. Yeah. Let's talk more about other countries before we go down this rabbit hole about how many problems there are with the world. Uh, So I I looked up things on Taiwan, mostly because I've been hearing a lot of good things about it and not necessarily hearing much about the bad things about it so that made me a little skeptical like it's not nothing's perfect and if taiwan's health system was so great which i think you know it probably has a lot of excellent things and they're doing a lot of things right why doesn't the rest of the world or the united states adopt the same thing so you know there's lots of variables involved like the density of the country the population the politicians that are involved the you know everything but anyways i have a quick question yeah for you. so you mentioned that you've heard good things about the taiwanese healthcare system i personally have not <laughs> as much as i pay attention to the news i haven't heard very much about um taiwan i usually hear about canada and like some european countries and whatnot um what yeah. what were your first impressions i guess of the taiwanese healthcare system what were my first impressions? Yeah, what are you, what um, were your first impressions and like what did you hear and what oh, made you think it was great, I guess? Yeah, my really first story I remember was probably back in 2008 or 2009, I forget. My friend, uh, she studied in Taiwan for a year. She uh, had a, a skin tag that was on her neck it doesn't really bother her but it was a, a little annoying to her and she decided to get it removed and she said that when she went in it was really quick like she was in and out and like within 15 minutes or something oh, and wow. they just zapped it and it was less than 20 dollars or something for That's the whole crazy. thing yeah so i'm like wait what she's like yeah <laughs> usually when you go to the doctor's office here you we, we, you wait in the lobby for at least 15 minutes oh yeah 15 minutes <laughs> um, is just check-in for me 
<laughs> yeah, and, and you know, it's not even that the, the lobby is full. It's just that the system's not that efficient. I don't know what's going on, but, you know, there's services these days that are special, like One Medical, where you pay a subscription per year to get that quick oh, man. <laughs> service. But yeah, so so that that's just normal there. That and I have another friend who um, I forgot what her story was, but it was along the same vein where it was quick, efficient and cheap. And all of the stories that I've heard was um, from the patient side and they were always happy with the services. So that generally painted a very good picture. But also during this COVID-19 pandemic, um, Taiwan's not a part of the WHO, which is, you know, a gigantic piece of story by itself. But if you looked at international news at all, you could see that they have successfully <laughs> dealt with COVID-19 yeah. um, and their their affection and death rate is very low and minimal. Um, they, I think this is not only attributed to their healthcare system, but their expertise in dealing with a disease that spreads because they had SARS too. So I don't know. It's, I think it's a combination of their government being on top of and aware of these types of things. And I think that's a big piece of it, caring about your people. So a surprise, yeah, to, to me, when I think about Taiwan, um, I think about the government caring about its people. So yeah, I want that's why I, I chose to dig more into the Taiwanese healthcare system. So let me give you a, a brief history on Taiwan's healthcare system. In the 80s, I don't believe they were even a democracy yet. Around only half of the population had health insurance, which means, according to my maths, that around half did not have healthcare. <laughs> 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 maths. <laughs> yeah. So the insurance schemes that were available were the labor insurance, governmental employee insurance, farmers health insurance, and fishermen's health insurance. So it's like huge pocket of the population that did not have it. Yeah. If you didn't have healthcare insurance, you generally wouldn't go to see a doctor or to a hospital unless it was super serious, like a stroke or you broke something. If you didn't have health insurance and if you did have a health crisis, you basically lost everything, uh, you know, like your home, anything you owned. Also, most general practitioners practiced independently. So a lot of expenses were out of pocket. You know, it's just not un unaffordable. Um, when it came around time for re-election, a lot of politicians fought each other to reform the health system. That was the thing that pretty much everyone was running as the primary campaign. So a lot of the politicians brought over experts from overseas into meetings to brainstorm and stitch together the best pieces of healthcare from different countries. One guest, uh, is actually a couple, um, attended you know one of these seminars or a conference no, I believe they said it was just like a table. <laughs> uh, so there was a German-born Uwe Reinhardt, and uh, he was a Princeton economist who was married to a Taiwan-born scholar, Mei Cheng. They both went to Yale, so they were brought over as experts from the United States. The important thing was he was the one who introduced the single-payer idea. Uh, mm. A lot of people sitting at a table did not understand what that meant. So 
he actually had to draw up what this meant. The problem with Taiwan's healthcare system was there were so many pipelines. The single payer system was different because it had one pipeline. You have all of the citizens getting health coverage, and there's one payer. That's the government. Um, the way that it was previously done was there was tons of different avenues, a complex series of pipes that you know went to different people. Um, and uh, his idea was to simplify all that to make it a single pair. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was inspired by his life, actually. He was um, born and raised in Germany. And in post-World War II, him and his family like lived in a tool shed, sleeping in the freezing cold. But the thing he says was at least they had health insurance. Okay, And he saw this as the most equitable and efficient thing and again like he's an economist this was supposed to be the chosen plan that Mm. was gonna be brought to life in the early 2000s but you know i don't know politicians being politicians fast forwarded (laughs) it they're like hey we need this done like now like 1995 and Basically, they they were fast tracked by I don't know five or six years or something, and everyone was freaking out like, how do we do this? I don't know. Like all of a sudden, everyone um, was really skeptical about whether this will work or not. You know, everyone being politicians themselves and the people, the public. There was tons of public doubt, and I think in 1995, it took six months for people to start finally seeing the benefits of this system. Originally, the approval rate was pretty low. Uh, I, oh, geez, I don't remember if it started off at like a 20% approval rate or oh, wow. like it, it was like That's 40. Crazy. I forget. But eventually, it took six months to continue growing steadily into the 60% approval rate. And the reason why it started getting more popular was because people started seeing how cheap it was for them to actually get access and coverage to health care that they needed. So like everyone has right to healthcare, it's the healthcare system, and they would pay less than I think equivalent to fifty US dollars a month at that time. Oh wow! Um, so I'm going to go through a simple list of you know pros. Every citizen has this IC card uh, that is a proof of coverage and a storage of medical records. So all facilities can look up a patient just as long as you have this ID card. This healthcare system has excellent IT infrastructure and a very comprehensive national data collection system for planning and research. The the care covers a lot of things. There's hospital care, primary care, prescription, drugs, and Chinese general medicine. Uh, and the copays are generally pretty low, like less than $12 or something. Those are the nice things. The problems that I found is was actually what I was looking for. They are, there's two primary problems. One, I think the largest one that is on political struggle and sustainability is there's an increasing cost per year. The pace of how much you pay per head does not keep pace with the national income. And the politicians are in charge of regulating the premiums, but they're all afraid to raise it because of their constituents and the constituents getting upset and angry. Mm -hmm. Again, like it's got a pretty high approval rate right now. I think it's like 80%, and that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is quite um, Yeah. So, again, there's a, another problem is the low doctor-to-patient ratio. There's a 
huge shortage of nurses. The appointments are generally pretty short because of the number of people to have to go through, which could be good or bad, but I think this is mostly seen as a con to the doctors and the, the nurses because they're wondering if this is substantive enough. I think another really big one, which it sort of compounds with the previous point, is there's no system to screen patients for specialized visits. So a lot of people go to the hospital no matter how small the health issue now. So previously, people would avoid going to the hospital because it was really expensive, unless it was serious. But now people go no matter how small the problem is because they are encouraged to go. It's really cheap for them, and it's a pretty quick appointment. Yeah. But that, that generally makes really large lines and big lobbies, but I think it's worth it to them. Taiwanese patients use a lot of healthcare, and it puts a lot of strain on the providers. The average number of physician visits per year is now 12, which is nearly twice that of any other developed country or economy. So the doctors are worked to the bone, but the patients are really happy. I think that's the, the sort of the opposite of the United States, where yeah, definitely. the high cost of health insurance or health needs are making people sort of skip their care. And that sucks. Yeah. And I mean, I think what you mentioned is, is very, it's very common. Like, I, I don't know about you, but for me personally, I even, <laughs> you know, even our insurance usually covers like your annual visit or whatever. And so I, sometimes I lag on that part of it is like laziness, but <laughs> part of it is also like, well, do I really need to go? Because you, you think of the cost, you know, I mean, even if the copay is like $20, it's like, well, it's $20 you can have used for lunch, <laughs> you know? That I think is is a general feeling that people have in the U.S., not just me being lazy and not going to the doctor, but I think in general, people are, are afraid to go to the doctor in the U.S. Um, for preventative care just because they're afraid of the costs. When I was researching, I saw that uh, according to the Commonwealth Fund, when they did a study about all this stuff relating to coronavirus stuff, but also looking at how... Americans dealt with the healthcare system pre-COVID, one in three adults in the U.S. skipped medical care because of cost compared to one in 10 in the U.K., Germany, the Netherlands, and Sweden, which which is huge. Yeah. And I think definitely. the differences between us and those countries that were listed is the whole idea of, I guess, what they call socialized medicine, right? Having a single-payer healthcare system that allows them to see the doctor when they need it and investing more in preventative care than having people have to go to the emergency room when essentially shit hits the fan and, and they have to they they're faced with a situation where they have to see a doctor instead of checking to make sure things are okay and you know it's kind of like taking care of a car right you probably want to do maintenance work and stuff on your car um, rather than wait until something explodes and then realize you have to pay a giant bill that could have been prevented if you actually took care of your car properly. And I, I mean, it's kind of weird to compare a car to a human being, but it's, it's the same concept. You know, usually you want to go see a doctor and deal with all these preventative things before things get huge. Earlier when I was saying in the white, you know, single, single payer works for Taiwan, why not do something like that in the United States? The national health insurance is equivalent to what people call Bernie Sanders Medicare for all. You know, it is single mm -hmm. payer. So, I mean, the idea is not new. It, it's just been practiced in Taiwan since 1995. 
May, who was part of the initial talks of this health insurance plan in Taiwan, said uh, during an interview that she doesn't believe that the political ideologies in the United States will make it uh, allowable for something like that to just yeah. be brought in easily. And actually said that it might be easier to bring in some like a, a stopgap to ease in the idea of having a, a public option. And that mm. exactly is what Pete Buttigieg was trying to recommend during one of the debates was, mm -hmm. you know, having both a public and private option. And then will people see, hey, the public option is actually pretty good and then slowly ease in that way. So, you know, people will eventually probably lean towards the public option because it's just more cost effective. Yeah, I'd imagine you have to have a, a big buy-in to the public option for the public option to actually work properly, right? Because there's that argument if you don't put enough money into a public option, then it doesn't work well. And then people are like, see, it failed. <laughs> yeah, so that that is one of the things that Taiwan knows that they're ha having struggles with is it's, it's starting to cost a lot more. And internal experts in Taiwan have said it could be within 10 years they'll go bankrupt. So some are saying no, like within six months or something. Um, so it's really scary. But again, overall, 80% approval rate. People love it. Like the people like it. It has clearly improved Taiwanese lives. The politicians are going to have to change something, whether it be premiums or increased co-pays, something to, to offset the costs. But generally, like the satisfaction is so high, it's sort of unheard of. Um, like, I, I don't know what in the United States has, oh, like, over 80% approval rate. <laughs> it, not even 80% of the the U.S. believes that science is a thing. So <laughs> What is science? You know, it, it frustrates me as someone that studied science. But yeah, that you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. There is, I feel like there's very little that the U.S. agrees upon. Although I will say, I believe there is a high percentage, I think there was a recent poll that there was a, a pretty high percentage of people that actually support Medicare for all. We'll see how that is when we actually go to the polls in November. There's been an, a growing support for Medicare for all, especially during this pandemic and dealing with COVID-19. How, how has Taiwan been dealing with COVID-19? Uh, they've They've been doing really good. <laughs> I think I sort of mentioned earlier already that they're one of the few who tackled it and successfully reduced the amount of spread. They, I think it's because they are already pretty skeptical of China, Chinese government. So <laughs> yeah. it was in December when they actually sent in a couple of their own doctors to the Wuhan area to find out in person what the heck was going on. And what they reported back was, yeah, this is a thing. <laughs> we need to deal with it. So by January, they've already released like hundreds of, um, I don't know what they call it, like policies that helped prevent the spread and tracking everyone who came from that region, containing them and actually providing services for getting those people home safely and quarantined. It, it's just like, like a comprehensive list of checkboxes that they had to do in order to maintain the spread mm -hmm. and they did an excellent job it just it just wasn't covered internationally again because they're not a part of the who it's really unfortunate that they didn't have a platform to discuss and share their expertise and knowledge on containing COVID-19 
I, I'd also want to mention that they have experience and organizational infrastructure to deal with a pandemic. Uh, they had already the tragedy of SARS in their pocket and learned from it and did not dismantle those systems. So they were well-equipped and took it really seriously. Yeah. <laughs> in contrast, I suppose Sweden handled it in a very interesting manner. <laughs> So I'm sure you guys know that Sweden, the way they handled coronavirus is, is very different, right? So unlike its Nordic neighbors, Norway and Finland, Sweden didn't lock down. They strongly recommended to their citizens that they socially distance and, and take all the precautions that I'm sure you've seen in the U.S. where it's like socially distance, don't go out when you don't need to, stay home, wear a mask, all that stuff. So Sweden had those as guidelines rather than actually – they didn't mandatorily lock down their country or anything like a lot of the world has because their idea was that if we allow for people to just continually go about their day but take on some of these precautions, then they'll allow the economy to continue to run and people will eventually catch the virus and they'll be fine, they'll recover, and then they'll rely on herd immunity. And you'll see that that's, that's the case that a lot of people in the U.S. like to make. Can you quickly define what herd immunity is? Sure. Herd immunity is the idea that most of the population has caught and recovered from a specific disease and essentially protects those people that have not yet caught the virus. So if we have the people that have recovered have the antibodies to not catch and continue to spread a specific virus or disease or bacteria or whatever. Um, and we can think of that in, in the US, we can think of that like as Similar to a lot of childhood diseases that we get vaccinated for, the idea is if we have a lot of people that are vaccinated, people that um, are immunocompromised and can't get vaccinated will be protected by herd immunity. But usually when to have a successful case of herd immunity, you have to have a pretty high percentage, something I think like 70, 80 percent of people being recovered or have antibodies through um, vaccination for herd immunity to actually work. So that was the idea that Sweden had. So according to the Swedish Public Health Authority, they were planning to reach herd immunity sometime in May. So they were looking at maybe like 70 to 90 percent of the population being infected and recovering from this this virus. Right. But according to NPR, um, sometime in late May, they were nowhere near even double digits. They were. I think they were doing an antibody study um, and the Swedish public health agency said that only 7.3 people in Stockholm had developed antibodies against COVID-19 in sometime in April. So, I mean, seven point can you imagine 7.3% of people in Stockholm having antibodies? So there's so many more people that could potentially be infected. And this is a, a country that didn't lock down. They voluntarily allowed their citizens to roam around as normal. Yeah. I mean, there are people that stay inside, but... That's so dangerous, though, still, because with that, you're guaranteed death. I don't know. It's, it sounds crazy to me. Like, do, do you know how many people actually lost their lives because of that, too? Like, yes. With that fraction? 
um, percentage? From, I think the, the most recent data that's showing up in Google when I look it up is there have been over 5,000 deaths in Sweden, which is significantly different from Norway and Finland, who those countries have locked down, right? But Sweden did not. Um, but yeah, they they have suffered 5,000 deaths, over 5,000 deaths in their country from not locking down. And that I don't remember the exact number for it, but their per capita death rate is is super high compared to their Nordic neighbors. So can you imagine if the United States didn't lock down as well? Like we're, we're over, it's 121,000 deaths and 2.29 million confirmed cases. And mind you, this is with the limited amount of testing that we've been doing in the United States. Um, and I know there's all these these conspiracy theories about people like doctors being incentivized to, you know, log deaths as COVID deaths because they get kickbacks from <laughs> insurance companies or some crazy thing like that. But I mean, even with that, if, if you say that's the case, I have seen so many different reports from different reputable news organizations that have said that we are actually undercounting the number of deaths caused by by COVID-19. Um, and I'm sure you'll see different reports where they're they're saying like different things, saying things like the hospitals have maybe changed the way that they're counting COVID deaths. But if you read closely about how they've changed the numbers, it's it's not that the people that have died don't have COVID-19 or has no tie to COVID-19. It's they've decided that the death is not directly caused by COVID-19, but the person did have coronavirus when they died. And I mean, you can argue either way. Um, even I feel like even if you discount those numbers, it's still a very high amount. And the fact that we've left this on a state level of of whether or not we shut down or how tightly we shut down, um, we ha- we still have so many deaths. And, and the crazy part is when people bring up the idea like, oh, well, why don't we be like Sweden so we can have a – a quicker uh, way of getting to herd immunity. Like if Sweden has left their economy open like that and is, you know, nowhere near double digits of people having those antibodies, the amount of deaths in the U.S. would be significantly higher than it is now. Um, And the difference between the U.S. and Sweden is that Sweden, like Canada, has a healthcare system that's decentralized and, their healthcare system is is paid for by the taxes that they pay into their their government system, right? So comparing, you know, Swedish the Swedish approach to COVID nineteen and how the U.S. should be doing something similar when we have such different healthcare systems is really comparing apples to oranges. Yeah, this is true. Population is really different. The geography is very different too. And I'm not sure about Sweden's age group. Do they, do they generally lean towards having an older population? I didn't look into that, but I do know that a lot of the people that are dying due to COVID-19 in Sweden are older populations, especially older populations that are living in um, like nursing homes and, and whatnot. And the thing that's that's interesting is you know, in the U.S., when it comes to nursing homes and stuff, um, you think about families paying out of pocket for those 
kind of services. But that's something that is in- included in Sweden's healthcare system is is some money that goes into taking care of the elderly, essentially. Speaking of costs, um, how, do you know how much it costs for the U.S. to deal with COVID-19? Uh, honestly, there's there's not really a specific answer because I'm sure you've seen so many articles recently that have come out about patients seeing different costs. I've seen articles that show things from like 34000 to there was a recent article um, where a patient stayed, I think, forget, like over a couple months in the hospital in, in Washington state. And his uh, hospital charge was something like $1.1 million. Affordable. While he's, I mean, yeah, definitely very <laughs> affordable. From what the article said, it's it's likely that he won't be on the hook for $1.1 million. The thing that jumped out to me in that article is is the fact that, that the patient said, I feel guilty about surviving. There's a sense of why me? Why did I deserve all this? Looking at the incredible cost of it all definitely adds to that survivor's guilt. And I think that's that's something that, you know, we talked about earlier too about how Americans are very hesitant to go to the hospital to deal with these things because the things are so expensive. And there's another article from Slate where a reporter happened to catch COVID-19 and he got one of those explanation of benefits or charges or whatever that was like $320,000. He didn't have to pay for any of that because UnitedHealthcare waived the patient responsibility for the COVID-19 treatment. And I'm sure you've heard that too, that a lot of companies like Cigna, Humana, and uh, United Healthcare are starting to waive the costs for patients that have to deal with COVID-19, which was, sounds great, right? But the thing that's that's crazy is when you really think about it, it's not really costing them very much, even though these these bills seem so ridiculous. Just in the first quarter of 2020, looking at United Healthcare alone, um, I believe United Healthcare is the largest insurer in the United States. They made $5 billion in profit just in the first quarter of 2020. And that's uh, that's just profit. That's not revenue. In three months, they made $5 billion in profit. And considering because of COVID-19, people are not taking elective surgeries, things that are considered like non-critical. So, you know, a lot of those surgeries aren't being paid for. Because people are not taking those elective surgeries, technically, Ned Healthcare is saving a lot of money. And a quote that from that Slate article that jumped out at me is very similar to the, the patient in Seattle, where he was chatting with a friend, he was texting with a friend, and he told the friend that um, started to feel symptoms of COVID. David Latt, the, the reporter, said, like, hey, if you start having trouble breathing, go to the hospital. Your life is more important than your finances. Um, and the most heartbreaking quote that his friend sent back was, your life is more important than your finances is luxury thinking. My finances determine my life. And I feel like that's that just explains the entire American healthcare system in, in just that one quote. It's everyone here in the U.S. is so worried about how they're going to be able to pay for things when it comes to healthcare instead of worrying whether or not they're going to be able to live. And that, that's... It's true for so many Americans, and there are so many bankruptcies that happen 
every year due to medical expenses. And that's that's just wrong because people should be able to live without, you know, being afraid of going to the doctor and seeing if they're okay. Yeah. My growing up, um, my parents were pretty deathly afraid of us needing to go to the doctor for anything that wasn't an annual checkup because like we had Medicaid. Yeah. But it's just it was again a tough system to navigate get correctly and health was equivalent to costing money and if anything costs money and a lot of it you want to avoid it so we didn't go to the doctor's office or hospital unless it was absolutely serious it's yeah it's it's scary for it was scary for my parents and I think it's it's probably still pretty scary for them now for me I I (laughs) privileged in that I have a job and an employer that helps pay for my health insurance but it's it's a different it's it's really different for people who can't afford health care it's a difference between like life you said <laughs> life and death yeah literally life and death hey it's i'm only gonna go if it's extremely important and even then like i i don't think i can afford this so i'm not gonna go yeah it sucks because the u.s spends nearly 17 percent of its gdp on health care which is roughly twice the average among other developed nations. We by far spend the most on healthcare and we get the least coverage in healthcare, probably because we look at healthcare as as an industry, as a for-profit industry, instead of actually thinking about caring for someone's health. <laughs> yeah, I think before the ACA was passed in 2010, there was like 16% of the Americans were still uninsured. Uh, yeah. to, to contrast, uh, for Taiwan, they now have 99% coverage. That's crazy. Yeah. The ACA is expected to cover uh, an estimated 30 million Americans by 2020. I, I don't even know if that's going to be reached, but that's, <laughs> that's a goal. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you can you know pass along to our listeners on how they could change things or actionable? Honestly, the... The biggest thing I think we can do as American citizens is vote. You hear that a lot, but it's not just voting for the president. It's voting for your Congress people. It's voting for your, you know, your local representatives and from, from the bottom up, right? You, you want to vote for everything every time because these people are the people that represent you and represent your interests. So I would highly recommend you guys check to make sure you're registered to vote. I know for Oregon and for California, it's easy, especially now, to do mail-in ballot voting. You know, with COVID nineteen and everything, it's it's easy for our states to vote. But if you're you happen to be in a state that makes it a little difficult to vote, or there's a history of voter suppression, definitely make sure you're registered. Even like a month or two before the election, make sure that you're still registered and everything is proper. Something that. I hear from a lot of, I think, immigrant parents and, and just children of immigrants is that they don't think their their vote matters. And it absolutely does. Like like we've mentioned in previous episodes, calling your Congress people and letting them know. But both state, like your U.S. senators and, and U.S. representatives, as well as your state senators and state representatives, um, figuring out who they are and letting them know what your thoughts are. It's their job to listen to you. Um, and they might not agree, but at least you're you're doing your duty as a U.S. citizen. 
Yeah, I forgot who shared this on my wall, but someone said that they worked in a local office and entire counter rooms can, can halt because of one personal email that someone sent to the office. Your voice matters. People are actually reading these things. And if you have a really thoughtful or you know passionate email, something that just describes what you believe in, people will read it and meetings will halt because of this piece of writing that you sent him so do not be afraid to voice out your thoughts yep all right guys we're gonna have to wrap it up because this episode has been extra long wow yeah super super long (laughs) sorry for going on and on about different healthcare we told you it was super long and too much information (laughs) so we have a fun one for you next time we're gonna have some special guests some friends and talk about immigrant children's struggles <laughs> it'll be more lighthearted. hearted hope more relatable and <laughs> the the goal is to try to get some laughs from our struggles altogether. so <laughs> yeah at the time it wasn't funny but growing up looking <laughs> back at these things it's, it's pretty it's really funny because you're like oh yeah i had to go through that too <laughs> It's nice and sort of great how people from all different types of cultural backgrounds share similar struggles um, and are able to laugh about it now. So it yeah. it'll, be, it'll be fun. It'll be great. I can't wait. Yeah. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. Bye. You know, can hear that? That's yeah. I think that's the rice. <laughs> um, is it st- substantive or substantial? Substantive. Substantive. Is that substantial? That, substantive. Dictionary. Substantive is an adjective. Okay. Substantial. It's also an adjective. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, can you hear that dog in the background? Oh my god. Oh, I heard that, that but I didn't hear the previous stuff. Okay. Sweden, where'd you go? Sweden? I don't know what we should talk about next. Medicaid? <laughs> we already talked about this. Is that the right one?